Welcome to this Berlinberg podcast, Regulating AI Perspectives from Europe and China. So I'm Toby Bond, I'm a partner in Berlinberg's IP group in London, and I spend far too much time talking, thinking and writing about AI. Now, regulating AI is pretty high on the agenda at the moment. It's been getting significant airtime at the G7. And as we record this, the UK is just gearing up to host a global AI safety summit. Now, today we're going to be talking about two jurisdictions which are really leading the way in AI regulation at the EU and China. Now, one of the pleasures of working at Bird & Bird is if you need an expert on any tech subject across Europe, Middle East and Asia Pacific, it doesn't take long to find one. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by two of those experts. So from Bird & Bird in Hong Kong, we've got Wilfred Ng. Wilfred, do you want to say a few words about yourself? Thank you, Toby. Hello, everyone. My name is Wilfred Ng. I am a partner in the commercial department of our Hong Kong practice, and I practice transactional regulatory matters for our technology clients in the region. And I'm really excited to be given the opportunity to exchange views and learn from my very dear colleagues who are also experts in the AI space. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Wilfred. And joining in Wilfred from Bernamard in the Netherlands, we've got Shima Abadi. Shima, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Toby. Uh, my name is Shima Abadi. I'm a lawyer in Bernamard, the Netherlands, and the commercial and data protection practices. I uh, have been at Bernamard for about seven years, specializing in AI, data regulation, and data protection mainly. And I'm doing both advisory and contentious work. And apart from that, I also undertake PhD, interdisciplinary PhD research in the field of AI. And I'm, I'm very excited that we have so many great experts here on this podcast with us and wider in Bird and & Bird and to be talking about this today. Great. Thanks so much, Wilfred and Shima. And Shima, I think you're doing a PhD in EU AI regulation. You probably spent even more time than me thinking about AI regulation and technology. So it's great we're all together today. And so my perspective, so as a lawyer based in London, very sort of into the AI space, I've seen a lot of articles discussing sort of EU AI Act. We've seen some on the sort of recent Chinese regulation of generative AI, but the one thing I hadn't really seen is actually many people sort of coming together to talk about the two in comparison and actually see like what each regulation is trying to achieve, how it's going about doing it, and also what themes we see emerging between the two. Like are there commonalities that we can we can learn from? That's why I thought it'd be great to bring you both together to talk about that. And I think maybe the way to get into it is to start really talking about what's the context of both of these proposals? Like what's the background? Where have they they come from? And maybe, Shima, if we start with the EU and the EU AI Act, maybe could you just give us an idea of sort of what, where has this come from? What's the EU been thinking about before? And why is it, why has it got to this point where it's trying to regulate AI now? Yeah, that, that is, of course, the best question, I think, to start with. It came, I think, from the desire of the EU to be the first, really, to introduce horizontal AI regulation in the world. And the EU realized in about 2007, approximately, that AI was going to be this huge thing and also on a fairly short term, and they wanted to capitalize on that. It's It's fairly simple. So the idea was that regulation is good for legal certainty and it's good for the protection of EU values and EU rights. And therefore it is good for trust, fostering trust in AI within the union. And then you can leverage that trust then to create innovation or encourage innovation, growth. You can also use it to try to be a standard setter for the rest of the world, just like we try to do and maybe even accomplish with GPR. So I think overall you can see it as an investment in AI from the EU. If you're looking at what you're asking about the wider legal framework, how it fits with other EU digital regulation, 
and because there's a lot <laughs> for anybody who's paying attention, I think it's clear there's a lot. It fits with these other types of new digital regulation, like the DSA, so Digital Services Act, also the proposal for a new AI liability directive, the machinery regulation, product liability directive update, etc. Because they're all meant to be pieces to this giant puzzle that is supposed to streamline the digital decade, which is the decade that we're currently in, according to the EU. And the AI Act is mostly the piece of the puzzle that is supposed to provide the general product safety perspective for horizontal AI regulation. Yeah, no, in, in, interesting. I mean, obviously, sort of EU wanting to be first and wanting to move move quickly, but it seems the technology is is moving pretty quickly as well. And sort of during the process, we've we've had sort of ChatGPT launch and generative AI. So maybe can you just tell us a bit about how generative AI sort of came into the picture with the EU regulation. Yeah, of course, it's it's the thing that everybody's talking about, and that's also, I think, the answer to the, to the question. These EU regulatory processes drafting a new regulation, especially in a completely new field such as AI, which has never been regulated before, they can take a lot of time, so a couple of years. And when they started undertaking this process years ago, the first proposal from the Commission, actually a draft proposal, came out in 2021, so more than two years ago already. And back then we didn't have ChatGPT. So when the ChatGPT craze started, that was exactly the moment when Parliament was working on their own position. So the Council and the Commission had previously already done that. And then Parliament decided, well, we have to also include something for generative AI specifically. And now they are basically all the parties are negotiating over how to do this exactly. Absolutely. But uh, I think you said that the EU wanted to be first, but I think actually, Wilfred, I think it's probably fair to say that um, that China's got there first with sort of regulating generative AI, but it, it wasn't the first thing. Do you maybe want to sort of explain a bit of what had been happening before the new sort of gen AI regulations in China? Yes, sure. Uh, obviously, because of the jurisdictional and cultural differences, I suppose it's fair to say the starting point uh, would be different, but you're absolutely right, Toby, in that it actually traces back to late 2020 or to 2021, where it was perhaps the more definitive and clear state direction and particularly inter cross-government cross departmental policy that has been put in place, particularly calling for regulation of algorithms of a specific nature. So as we'll get into in the later parts of the podcast, when we talk about the specific obligations, these algorithms, it's called recommendation algorithms. And basically they are uh, of a functionality that can filter, recommend, rank the usual, very common, typical functionalities that you would see in an app or over other kinds of internet services. And also these directions also focus on another kind of algorithm, which is what we're talking about regarding generative function. So for example, if an algorithm can synthetically generate something or vary something, vary an online content, that would also fall under the ambit of this regulatory direction. So these actually came from 2020 to 2021. That's before the current interim measures for the management of generative AI services, which is the most talked about and most known for being compared to other overarching AI regulations in other jurisdictions. 
Yeah, we'll probably get into it a bit, but recommendation algorithms, Shima, I know, are something which has been actually one of the hot topics for the sort of EU's way of looking at regulating AI. So interesting to see that. That's definitely an issue which both jurisdictions are looking at. Yeah, I do have to say, Toby, though, that there is a slight difference with uh, with China because the main focus on recommender systems is, is really in the DSA, so that's the Digital Services Act. So that's not really the main topic for, uh, or a main topic for the AI Act. There is a proposal for Parliament to also regulate recommender systems of very large online platforms, also as high-risk AI systems that should be regulated. That's something we're going to be explaining later. There is potentially some overlap there, but not all the parties seem to be agreeing on that currently. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, that's probably a good segue into the sort of second areas I wanted to cover, which is we've talked about where these, where this sort of stuff has, has come from and what was happening before, which you, we should probably talk a bit about what's actually being regulated, what's each jurisdiction trying to, to cover. And maybe if we just start with, so what, what types of AI systems are being covered and are they sort of being classified in, in different ways? And maybe Shima, do you want to sort of just set out the, where the EU's thinking around sort of classifying systems? Yeah, of course. So for the EU, the, the definition of AI system will be fairly broad, but only the ones that are considered to be high risk and possibly those qualifying as foundation models are going to be extensively regulated. So there is going to be another category of systems which are going to be banned entirely, which are, for example, systems for general social scoring. And then there are systems which are going to be regulated to a very limited extent. So that means only transparency obligations will apply to them. And that's uh, systems meant to interact with people like chatbots, but also systems producing defects and perhaps emotion recognition systems and biometric categorization systems. So really where it's really at, especially for us lawyers, I think is the high risk category, because that's the interesting category where all the regulation is going to apply to and possibly also the foundation model category. But that's something that the EU is still debating about. And so which systems are going to qualify as high risk systems is going to be something that will be able to change over time. So the EU wants to have kind of a flexible risk-based approach where they can designate on a case-by-case basis even systems as high risk. And it will depend on the, the purpose of the system. So the moment you're operating a system that is likely to have fundamental rights implications for individuals, so for example, in the area of recruitment, public benefits, law enforcement, etc., that's one of those areas that is likely to be regulated as a high-risk area. But overall, it's going to be a minority of all AI systems in the EU. So that's, I think, something that's good to keep in mind because a lot of people don't realize that most systems yeah. will probably not be regulated at all. Yeah, this isn't regulation for every type of possible AI, it's for particular particular types. Alfred, what about China? What's the sort of scope and categorization which is we're seeing coming up there? Yes, I think that the really interesting uh, comparative angle here is it's very obvious the Chinese measures are more focused on the generative side of things. So uh, if you almost juxtapose the two, you can see it is less of a classification system. So the definition strictly is related to models and technology that have the ability to generate. So for example, text, audios, images, videos, and all other very content specific output. So I think here we can already see from a legislative or policy perspective, 
the measures are very obvious in driving at a very specific use of AI logic or AI applications as compared to uh, what uh, Shima has uh, very comprehensively explained, which is more of a wide spectrum of application. That probably has to do with uh, a lot of the existing content-related regulations um, in other laws, not specifically limited to uh, the AI context. So, for example, um, if you provide an internet service, um, there are already existing uh, content regulations that you will need to comply with. And as we'll get into other obligations, you also see some parallels in the regulatory uh, and the legislative intent. So I think in a nutshell, it's fair to say it is definitely less of a classification system, but it's very, very focused on the generative side and particularly on the content output. Yeah, and, and interesting. I mean, I think that your comment there about it's part of there's existing content regulation people need to think about as well is probably quite an important insight for both. There's, there's this existing regulatory context which this legislation is is fitting into. So, um, yeah, I think great to, to pull that out. One of the key things I guess people need to understand about this regulation is actually who who's going to be regulated, like which parties are going to have to comply with these regulations. So maybe if we just compare a little bit of that. So Shima, from the EU perspective, like who are the primary targets of, of regulation in terms of the actors in the sort of AI supply chain? The primary targets are uh, providers of systems, of, uh, of regulated systems. So that would be the parties that are developing these systems, bringing these systems onto the market in their own name. Um, they could also sometimes be importers, for example, of systems. But you know, the ones that are responsible for the system being in or being used in the in the EU or in the EU market. And then there are the deployers of systems. So those are the parties that are using the systems for their own purposes. So for example, if you are a bank and you have a credit worthiness check system, then you will be considered a deployer of that system. Uh, and then you would also be uh, uh, exposed to, uh, very likely exposed to uh, to regulation as deployer of that system. But there are still negotiations currently also going on about how exactly the division of obligations in the supply chain should go and also exactly which parties in the supply chain should be regulated. There's still, uh, I think the last word has not been said about that currently. Wilfred, maybe tell us a bit, is, is it the same in China? Do we have that sort of provider and deployer? Was it more focused on one side or the other? Yeah, I think on this particular point, it is quite similar. So it captures what is defined as a service provider. And it is very clear that it will catch both the developer, uh, the platform, the AI platforms, as well as the organizations who are going to incorporate for example, through uh, APIs into their apps, incorporate these AI technologies into their applications. So both deployers and, and developers will be under the, the, the scope of the these measures. What about the sort of jurisdictional scope? So like, how, how do you fall into these these regulations? So who, who actually, where in the world do you need to be to um, to get caught? It will be very similar to the EU from what I understand um, about the, the current EU framework. So it's still very targeted to as long as you're providing this generative AI services to public inside China. So there is obviously that classic extraterritorial element. If, for example, I'm, I'm hosting and providing this AI service outside of China, however, I'm 100% targeting the 
audience inside uh, China, then obviously I will still be caught uh, under the measures. Yeah, that does sound similar to the EU scope, but you know, in good EU fashion, we're going one step further in terms of extraterritoriality, I think. Um, so not only if you are using these systems, deploying these systems within the union, or if you are providing these systems, bringing them onto the union market, but even if you're only, if you're only using the output of the system and parliament even wants to go as far as if you intend to use the output of the system in the EU, then you would be caught already. So it's very easy to fall into the uh, regulation, uh, regulation scope. Yeah. <laughs> That's definitely a theme we've seen coming up before with the approach to the territoriality and, the, and regulation. We then we sort of worked out where this stuff's come from, who's going to be caught by it. But maybe we should talk now a bit about, like, actually, what do you need to do if you are falling within the scope of the regulation? I think what it seems to be is this focus on sort of ex ante assessment. So before you make these systems available, before you deploy them, you have to go through some assessment processes to to make sure that they comply with the, the regulations. So maybe if we just talk a little bit about, I mean, sort of for what, what sort of risks, what sort of things you need to be assessing for compliance? I mean, Shima, what's the EU sort of thinking about? What, what do you actually need to be doing to, to put these systems into practice in the EU? Yeah, so like I said before, the AI Act is it's kind of a product safety regulation. So it's it's written also from that angle, from product safety angle, more than, for example, data protection angle or something like that. So we're looking at very traditional, but then of course applied in the context, a new context, context of AI, but pretty traditional product safety compliance obligation. So that's things like uh, maintaining a risk management system, quality, maintaining quality systems and, and monitoring these systems, having up-to-date technical documentation, record keeping, logging, that sort of thing for providers of the systems. And then for deployers of systems, there will also be obligations, for example, to use in accordance with the instructions of, of use, making sure that, you know, the data that you are using is also compatible with the intended purpose of the system, monitoring the operation of the system. So that's, of course, post implementation if you're deploying, but ex-ante providers will have to comply with a lot of those kind of traditional um, product safety obligations that are going to be filled out further by, uh, by, by standards that are, have yet to be published. And the risk that they're really looking for, because I said product safety, but it's product safety specifically, mostly from a, a fundamental rights perspective. So, you know, you have to look at risks to health or safety of natural persons, their fundamental rights, including potentially equal access and opportunities and parliaments, especially, but also the other parties have mentioned things along those lines, but they want to also look at, for example, risk to democracy and the rule of law or the environment. And so that means that <laughs> there could be quite an extensive number yeah. of risks. Yeah, pretty extensive. This. I mean, it's interesting to see you take the sort of traditional type of product safety harm to, yeah. to people, sort of physical harm, and you extend it into new new types of harm, both to the individual and potentially sort of perceived harms to society. So it's sort exactly. of, I think that's part of a, a broader sort of shift we've seen especially with all the discussion around online harms and those types of, of things. But that, that's how the sort of EU's looking and thinking. Wilfred, what's the, what's the sort of Chinese perspective on the type of assessment which needs to take place before these systems can be sort of made available? Thanks, Toby and Shima. This, I think this is a really good juncture because, and also to attest to the fact that how 
things have been moving basically at a, a such a fast pace uh, because as we speak now, um, we recall the measures were uh, they took they, they they took effect in August this year. But as we speak and we record this podcast now, actually in this week, the National Standard Committee published a uh, new standard currently still in consultation draft, but basically is to supplement some of the obligations in the measures and specifically somewhat of an exante nature as well. So, for example, if your um, generative AI technology is specifically applied for services which have public opinion properties or capacity for social mobilization, these are not new obligations, but um, they are particularly elaborated in the measures. And if you do that, then you will have the filing requirement for your algorithm as well as you have to undertake a uh, self-security assessment, which needs to be filed together with the algorithm. Now, what I've mentioned about the supplemental standards on the securities of these algorithms actually really in detail set out what kind of assessment you need to do. So, for example, you need to satisfy a certain prescribed rate of filtering prohibited content, um, there are very specific uh, thresholds and basically uh, tests that you need to run with your algorithm before you're able to file with the regulator. And I think the other side in terms of ex ante considerations would be not so dissimilar with the EU, basically to ensure the legality of your training data. Also in this supplemental standard, it it's been quite clear that there's a very detailed section on the kind of content filtering of the training data. So for example, the your, you have to proactively ensure that the training data doesn't contain the illegal contents to ensure that they are not disseminated through your algorithm. This extends to some of our upcoming uh, topics. So for example, uh, your IP mitigation strategy will also be relevant here. You need to demonstrate that infringing content won't be used as part of your training data. And also the same extends to personal data uh, considerations. So if personal data is involved here, whether consent has been uh, acquired. So I think in practice, this might not be couched as an anti-approval per se, but you can already see, um, particularly from the developer as well as the organizations who are going to incorporate this technology, it only makes sense for them to overcome all these obligations prior to rolling out their product because um, it would definitely require a lot of collaboration within their legal teams and their product teams. And this is, I think, I think this is also quite specific because of the nature of the Chinese regulations, as I was referring to, quite content-driven, and also, as you can see, has a very specific focus on um, the underlying algorithms of these uh, technologies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, interesting you mentioned standards. wasn't aware that they'd be published this week, but it seems to me quite a lot of the action is actually going to be at the, at the level of these technical standards. And I think, Shima, that was you were mentioning, like, we still were awake. We still need to wait for actually what a lot of these technical standards are going to say to implement these broad principles which are coming up in in the yeah. act so yes we, we may think we're having a lot of discussions at the moment but continue at that technical level um going forward yeah and uh, the technical the standard setting bodies will have a lot of power that's for sure <laughs> yeah 
Absolutely. I mean, we see it, it, it applies to all the existing EU sort of product legislations. You have these harmonised standards, which you, you can comply with. You get a presumption of conformity if you comply with them. You can go about doing it other ways, but it's generally a lot easier to, to follow the standards and show you're, you're working that way. But, um, yeah, we'll have to wait and see how the, the process works. I mean, I think, Wilfred, you mentioned, you touched on briefly sort of registration requirements. Could you maybe just explain a little bit more about how that how that works? Yeah, so the measures actually refer to, as we were referring to in the beginning of the podcast, when we're talking about the the sort of the historical, the evolution before these measures. So it actually referred to a different set of measures, which spell out the filing requirement and or maybe the registration requirement. Essentially, apart from that self-assessment checklist that you need to go through, you need to also file quite an extensive list of information regarding your underlying algorithm. Obviously, it will include your functionality as well as the, the nature of your algorithm. And as I was referring to, I think you will also need to expect that there is sufficient demonstration of how you pass those security thresholds. So, for example, the standards clearly require you to show your algorithm, for example, exceeds a 90% success rate in in detecting those prohibited content or, for example, those uh, prohibited keywords, then you will need to have very ample evidence to show that your algorithm is able to achieve that. Um, so that will be all part of the filing requirements, which will need to be submitted in theory within 10 working days upon service commencement. But obviously no sane provider would only do that within that 10 working days, which is why at the end of the day, in practice, it, it will still be very much an ex ante obligation in practice, which I think makes sense. And I think I can hear Shima echoing in my mind already about all those assessment obligations, which will also make sense, I think, to to do do it in advance. And I'm sure from a regulatory and policy perspective, obviously two jurisdictions are very, very different. But I know I'm also interested to to know Shima's view as to the kind of current, maybe in light of the current legislative dialogue as well. How would maybe how would the maybe the current EU legislators look at what China is doing in terms of these all very extensive filing and registration requirements? Yeah, I think that they're, that they're definitely um, somewhat aligned on that, Wilfred. <laughs> so I think that the the EU also is very much focusing on the ex-ante process and the ex-ante documentation and assessment and uh, all these product safety requirements that have to be done. And then in the EU, you'd have to get a CE marking. So that it means that you have to go through a conformity assessment, which for most systems likely would be self-assessment. And then if that is complete, then it would mean that the all of the obligations of the AI Act are met, and then the system can be marked with a CE marking, meaning that it's a, it's a safe system. And then after that, it has to be registered in an EU database, which will also have to contain information about the system. We'll have to await, of course, the details of what exactly will have to go in that registration. But it will be clear that the system will be publicly registered, and that means that there has to have to be some public commitments about the, how the system works and what it can do, and potentially also its limitations. The EU also wants to go so far as far as to perhaps also obligate particular types of deployers of systems to also register their use of systems. For example, public authorities are very likely now to be uh, caught by that obligation. 
yeah about so we've got registration in both I think maybe to sort of bring this bring this all together like so there's there's obviously a lot happening in, in both jurisdictions in this space the EU is getting close to, to finishing its act China sort of got there already although it's now it's working on the sort of technical standards and um yeah, sort of how it's going to be implemented in practice but what if, if you're an organization who's going to be impacted by these these rules like what what should you be thinking about like how do you go about approaching this sort of regulation what are your sort of what are your top tips like where would you start Wilfred what, what would you say from a sort of China perspective so I don't think it will be significantly different from your usual internal guidance or external guidance for example of for your employee usage of these technology technologies or even for your vendor to incorporate the reason i say that is some of the issues are are, are very very familiar to many lawyers already so for example the issues surrounding data protection i think as a i'm sure this will be shared in 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 the eu as well so how do developers ensure the legality of data sources and extending beyond data protection for example from a content specific perspective as well extending to, to um, infringing ip content and also contents that could po- potentially violate other national laws how can organizations preempt that and how can organizations when operating the ai logic how can they redress when there is a violation so the classic sort of takedown mechanisms that we're all familiar with these will still be relevant same with how you respond to data subject rights requests this will all be part of your existing dsr policy hopefully the only thing I would highlight is quite interestingly, the definition for service provider in these measures, because it catches both the developer and the enterprise user who will incorporate the AI technology. And on that basis, the measure specifically stated that the service provider in the broader sense has primary liability to be responsible for any content violations and also deemed as a data controller. Now, when you, I guess when you read to this, you might think, well, but service providers can have two permutations here. It can include obviously both the developer and the organization who's incorporating the technology. So this is again, a very classic issue of how you contractually allocate the underlying risks, particularly when you procure those AI technology from the developer. If you look at when you have your negotiations and if you have this particular provision in mind, I'm sure a lot of the efforts and time of that negotiations will be spent on who is going to be responsible for the content after all. And this also boils down to a little bit more nuance here in the AI context. After development of the AI, generative AI technology, how far is the enterprise customer able to optimize it? can the customer tweak it and if it tweaks it what goes what is happening with all the liability issues so that's why i think it's a very very familiar set of conversations but in a very uh different context yeah and i think shima as wolfie was just talking through that it was just ringing so many bells with with me and some of the work you and i've been doing looking at contractual arrangements from the sort of eu perspective and how you how you manage that regulatory responsibility and how that gets passed through or managed in in the contracts i mean what, what are your thoughts like i think definitely contracts but um yeah what else do you, you think shima that are the sort of where, where you need to be looking if you are potentially going to be sort of touched upon by these regulations 
Yeah, I think Wilfred actually put it beautifully when he said, you know, it's a lot of familiar obligations in new contexts. Uh, I think that's that's very much true here as well. Uh, we have obviously been dealing with digital regulation, with data elements, with data, with content regulation, with IP, with basically all of the areas that are going to be caught by AI. And then specifically when it comes to this regulation, I think the most important thing to start with is to just be aware within the organization and to ensure that you have on your radar what's happening with regard to AI. That's already the point where I see it going wrong in many in many organizations right now, because if you know if you have an overview, then you can also assess the risk and you know what time when you should be starting. You know you, when you might be caught. It's possible that there's going to be an exception for systems that are already on the market before the for the AI Act enters into force or even into application. And so that might mean that not all of your systems would be caught, but then, you know, perhaps you could still be smart from, for example, civil liability perspective to look into those systems uh, as well to make sure that they could, you know, also comply with at least the, the legal norms that we can steal from the AI Act that could result in torts, for examples. With regard to how to start your compliance process, of course, it's somewhat difficult to, to, to do everything now already because we're still waiting. We're still waiting for a final text and then after we we have a final text we'll be waiting for standards but you know there are already a lot of standards for ai ethics for ai risk management etc that are already in existence so i think it would be a good point to start with very basically you could start for example with the uh, assessment list for trustworthy ai from the high level expert group of the of the eu that's a pretty basic one if you want to go more into technical specifics then you could look into standards that are already existing, for example, from NIST, from ISO, the ISO norms, etc. I think then you have to look into whether, you know, you could be, if you are a deployer of systems, whether defenders that you're purchasing from are also looking into all of these things demonstrably, but because that would probably mean that you're safer purchasing from them than from others. And then make sure that you of course, allocate your contracts accordingly and have internal policies that correspond to all of this risk management. Hope that <laughs> provides some yeah, some no. some framework. Well, I think I mean maybe we draw it together. I think we should draw draw to a close. But I, I think the sort of two key messages for me. So there's one one which is that there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be to be done here to sort of get yourselves compliant with the, with the legislation, get ready for it, think about your contracts, think about your policies and governance. So there's the one sort of Quite a lot to do, but I think there's also a, a note of hope here, which I think both of you have um, brought out, which is like this isn't entirely new. This hasn't come from totally out of the blue. There's a lot of work that's been done already, and a lot of thinking which has been done already, which people can draw upon, and leverage, and and bring together. So I think there's a lot to do, but a lot that's already already been done. So I think that's the note. End on a, a positive note. I just just to say, Shima Wilfred, thank you so so much. That was a absolutely fascinating discussion and really interesting to hear both of your perspectives bring it together so i think with that i'll say thanks very much and uh draw it to a close thank you